Hello, and welcome to episode 14 of the Lorefield Podcast, a Starfield lore and news podcast. I'm your co-host, Mitch, along with my wonderful other co-host, Isra. Hello. We have a really exciting episode in store for you today. Um, now that we've spent a couple episodes dissecting the Starfield showcase itself, we'll be going deep into specific topics relating to the game. And for the foreseeable future, I think that's going to be the format we take. So today we're going to go into locations of the game. Um, all the ones we know about from the small locations like the Crete Research Outpost to the big locations like uh, Alpha Centauri. Uh, but we won't just like tell you what they are and what we can find in them. We're going to tell you what we know about uh, their histories, possibly, uh, where their names come from, and what role they could play in the game. So this should be a really fun episode. A lot of research went into it, so it should be a fun time. Let's do this. We do have a couple of things to get to uh, before that that main section of the show. Last episode was really well received, and we got a couple of cool comments from people. Isra, do you want to go through the first one from Matthew Wolf? And do that again. So Matthew Wolf says, "Excited to listen to another Lawfield podcast. Loved the last one. Thank you. I'm curious what the size and scope of Starfield means for Test Six. I know it's unlikely." But with Starfield's planets being actual planet-sized, couldn't that mean that Test 6 might be all of Temriel? I doubt it, but it's something its something fun to think about. Isra, of the two of us, you are definitely more knowledgeable on the Elder Scrolls stuff. Do you think it's likely that they could tackle all of Tamriel in the next Elder Scrolls? I'd say it's unlikely. I mean, they could do it. But you've got to think, all of these races have different cultures. You'd, they'd have to make assets for each of these cultures and they'd have to cut corners on a lot of it. So I think maybe two provinces at most. Um, but even then, you're stretching the thing thin, in, in my opinion. Interesting. I was thinking about this too, and we know Creation Engine 2 tech developed for Starfield is going to carry over to their future games. Uh that probably involves procedural generation, hopefully vehicles. I hope there's a naval section to test six. Um, but anyway, so we know that we do know that Bethesda's artists can handle a lot of variety and they can handle a big workload that would come with making different regions. They did make a game with a thousand planets and we don't know how many of those assets were procedurally generated or how much, how many were actually handcrafted by an artist. But Starfield looks like a huge game, and Test 6 would be big too. I think a bigger question might be if they have the bandwidth to populate the entire continent with content to the extent that other games in the series are. So I thought lines of dialogue would be a good way to measure it. Skyrim had 60,000 lines of dialogue, and a lot of that was from Daedric quests or generic lines that wouldn't really need to be duplicated from one province to another. So we will arbitrarily say that each province has 40,000 lines of dialogue um, if it mains, maintains a similar scale to the other games. Morrowind, Oblivion, and Skyrim are all on like a very similar scale. And then I also gave them the liberty of not including the Somerset Isles, so because it's an island far away. It could be a good DLC, though. So we'll go with eight provinces in Tamriel that they need to do. So if you take 40,000 lines of dialogue and eight provinces, a full Tamriel-sized Test 6 would have 320,000 lines dialogue which is like starfield plus fallout 4 and then some so it's a huge step up and it's kind of close to red dead redemption 2 
but I I don't know if they, they could do that. I would love it, but it, it, I think it might be a little out of reach. I think yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, like the amount of assets for all the different regions. You've got the Aeliad stuff. Uh, you've got like the, uh, you've got like Valenwood with all the, like um, the trees and it's mostly just like nature. Elsewhere, you've got like the deserts, the jungles. Um, you've got Cyrodiil, which is, well, we've seen Cyrodiil. Um, Black Marsh, literally swamps there, and then they've got to build all these assets, like the um, temples, and then all the Dwemer ruins are put north, and then you've got all the Nordic ruins, and you've got, and you've got to think, someone's got to make these assets, and they've got four to five years to do all this. I just don't think it's humanly possible. Like, considering how diverse the world of Tess actually is, with all these different cultures and structures and all this. Yeah, I, I do wish we could see, like, the southern parts of Tamriel in a mainline game. ESO's cool, but it's not the same, aesthetically speaking, and, and in terms of layout. But, yeah. I'll be happy with Hammerfell. Well, I, I got into a debate the other day about if they should include High Rock with Hammerfell. And my argument point was, you get to show off all this new technology. And High Rock, from my knowledge, is like, you're as traditional and medieval as it gets. Besides Bretons being, you know, half-elves and great magic users, um, you've got, like, kingdoms, you've got knights, you've got stuff, stuff that was in my country several millennia ago. Millennia? No, it's centuries, isn't it? But that's probably why they that region didn't really interest me. Because you've got like, you know, it's like traditional medieval, like castles, knights, kings, queens, kind of thing. Um, but I think that might be easier to tackle than Hammerfell. Somewhat. I don't know if that makes sense or that just sounds really stupid uh, for me to say. Because Hammerfell is pretty, like, political. You've got a few clans um, that will probably be fighting. But I don't know. I mean, if they include High Rock, the reason why I bring it up, it'd be a massive undertaking for them to make the High Rock assets and then the Hammerfell assets. But then you get the uh, Iliac Bay, and then you can introduce the naval combat. Because if you just have Hammerfell, I don't think there's an... You could include the bay, but what is there to go towards in the bay? You can only really go to Hammer, um, High Rock. Mm. There is that tower in the bay, right? Like the oldest. Yeah. But I, I, I do see your point, yeah. I'm, I'm wondering, actually, if that tower is going to play any significance in Death 6. Because that's one of the towers, so... I wonder if it'll be like in Morrowind you had Red Mountain, in Oblivion you had the White Gold Tower, in Skyrim you had the Throat of the World. Maybe in Test 6 you'll have, I forget the name of that tower, but it's like the oldest structure in all of Tamriel. It was like built by the yeah. gods themselves or something. It's where the Trial of Lorcan supposedly took place. No, I actually, as far as I know, there are actually people living on the island. So... Yeah, that would be an interesting plotline if you went yeah. there. 
Yeah, we are obviously a primarily Starfield show. For the, for, so for those of you who don't like Test 6, um, sorry. But um, I thought that would be a fun little rabbit hole to dive down. The next comment came from Zachary Murdoch, who said, I think there's a tie-in between a 1,000 life-size planets and the hinted social elements that Starfield will have. It's impossible to fully explore a 1,000 life-size planets in a single person's lifetime, but not a million persons. I think Starfield will have in-game means of players sharing their discoveries with others using some sort of photo and message sharing. The issue might be bad, adult, bad apples sending obscene or hate material, so there would need to be some form of moderation. It is interesting that Todd had talked a little bit years ago about a social connection that Starfield might have, and it was very interesting phrasing considering, aside from Fallout 76, no Bethesda game has had a social connection like that. Um, the, the one thing that I always think of relating to this is Minecraft's leaderboard um, on, I think on Bedrock Edition or on the uh, two generations ago console edition, there were leaderboards where you could see how many spiders you had killed and how many spiders all of your friends had killed and um, on what difficulty. It was pretty robust and it was fun to, to look at. Um, I wonder if Starfield could do something similar, but I really like this photo and, and message sharing idea to share your discoveries. What do you think? I think... So, I, I don't know. I mean, unless, like, you take a picture in photo mode, for example, and then it will share it to the Xbox Live network. I would say Bethesda Net, but they've kind of stepped away from that. So, I'm, I, I don't think there's going, like, on Steam, there's not going to be any Xbox Live connectivity. But that's the way I'd see it, as like you can go around and share these photo mode pictures, or you can like tag them and post them to Twitter. I don't know. It's I'm not sure because like they wouldn't. Oh, you can play co-op. I don't think that's gonna happen. Um, but I think I I don't know. I just think something like oh, I share a photo and then it goes to Twitter or Facebook or and then it gets likes. And you can go on your board in-game. Like, there's a social board, and you can see everyone else's screenshots and stuff. That's just what I was thinking. You're like, because all these planets are going to have so much scenery, and it would be you know, cool to have a quick way to share them. Yeah, absolutely. One of the ideas I had was that it would be cool if, at the Constellation headquarters, there was a terminal you could go to, and it would be... It would, it would kind of say, like, here's what other members of Constellation are finding in the field. And it would be what, like things that other players had find and had found. Fucking <laughs> grammar. Um, but it would be like screenshots that others, other players have taken with the photo mode. And you could kind of scroll through them in the game on a terminal. And it would make sense since every player is a member of Constellation. Uh, what, what would happen if you were offline though? Oh. It could just maybe say like system offline or something. That would be cool. It's like um, in, instead it says you're not using internet. What era are you in? <laughs> Hopefully that doesn't become an issue for anybody, but I'm sure it will. And then do you want to take this comment from Les Mill? I love the, uh, I think that's a Detroit Tigers profile picture. I could be wrong though. So Les Mill says auto or manual flight is my biggest question. Can your character get up from your ship when you're flying, or are you essentially one with the ship? During the trailer, when the ship is docked to the other, 
it does give you three options undock board and get up so maybe we've talked a little bit about like the small concerns that we have about the game and i think for me one of the most uh, prominent ones i have is that i'm worried we can't get up from the captain's seat while flying um and that we can only do it once we've docked or landed somewhere like i really want to get up from the captain's seat walk around interact with my crew while we're flying through space and it kind of looks like we can't do that which i think is a little disappointing not the end of the world um you just have to dock or land somewhere or maybe even go into some separate mode maybe it's just a different um reality as todd put it where you can choose to get up whenever you want but then like the screen goes black and there's no like animation where you get up out of the chair if that makes sense so yeah i, I share your concerns lesmo but we'll see what do you think is i i think i mean i'd love to because with my humor i would set a trajectory for a sun start traveling in that direction get up start reacting and as i got closer and closer you can just imagine the panic on board and I'm just casually playing cards or something. Then at the last minute, I turn away. I mean, remember that this is a Bethesda Game Studios game. I think as you're approaching the sun and, you know, the cabin is starting to explode, I think one of your crew members would be like, need something? <laughs> <laughs> no, I feel like... I, I don't know. This this would be a hilarious book. You I was doing what I was doing, flying towards the sun, just casually playing cards left the ship in the trajectory and then the game bugged and the ship gently tapped the planet and the game freaked out i just went a million miles an hour in the opposite direction and then suffocated in space or the ship just goes flying tumbling my character's ragdolling in the round in the ship i'm really excited for the physics with the different gravity levels and everything it it was I think you asked me. Was it? I think it was on the show a few episodes ago. What you think would happen if, in like Starfield, if an object went like at the speed of light towards a planet, and then I said the game would crash. <laughs> yeah, I'm just you know having a joke at the way the physics sometimes could crash a game and because the games so it was kind of funny. Yeah, for sure. Hopefully physics aren't still tied to frame rate. Oh, no, no, no. They, they stopped that after 76, because, uh, well, you could kind of run across the map oh. uh, in, like, four times the speed. <laughs> it's funny. It is interesting, though, because people, I remember when they said we couldn't do, um, like, it sounds like we can't do in-atmosphere flight. And the reasons for that are pretty obvious, because it would be really easy to crash into things and crash into people and, and buildings and that's that's a challenge that I, I don't think Bethesda should be expected to handle but even when you're in space when you have space, space stations and other ships they're still going to have to handle the collision problem and what does your ship get damaged does it instantly explode when you run into something does the other object that you run into like bounce off into space there are a lot of questions there then I'm excited to ram into something and see what happens. Someone is actually going to not play the game, but play the game to test. But is it really playing the game? 
when they're playing it to experiment what you can and can't do? I would say so, yeah. Oh, here's how you break Starfield. Ah, oh, that reminds me. Do you know who Spiffing Brit is? No. He uh, he likes to break Bethesda games. Or he just likes breaking video games for exploits. And he calls them perfectly balanced games. Um, I can't wait till he does a Starfield video. Hopefully he does. Ah, that's going to be hilarious. Because he's just going to exploit Starfield. Using, like, uh, infinite damage uh, glitches. Because uh, Bethesda games have never been... They've always had exploits. Where you can make weapons with ridiculous damage. Yeah, and I'm excited for that to continue. Are you ready to get into the main part of the show? Every single location we've seen and everything we could deduce about it. Absolutely. Alrighty, so I think the way we're going to do this is by first talking about specific locations that are on planet, like the, the smaller ones that you discover and get a little bit of XP for going to. Then we'll zoom out and do all the planets and moons we've seen, and then we'll zoom out even more and do every system we've seen. So with that in mind, first location is going to be Neon. We'll start with the easy ones, but I promise there are going to be some very interesting and niche ones that only had a passing mention in the showcase. But Neon, the fishing company Ryujin Industries, is there, of course, the drug, Aurora. Ooh, I love a bit of space LSD. Yes, I'm excited to see, like, the, um, I'm really not a partier in real life, but I will be in Starfield. I'm excited to see, like, the, the nightclubs in, in the Neon, just how wild it gets. Um, Aquila, capital of the Freestar Collective. One thing we learned in the showcase is that the headquarters of the Freestar Collective is called The Rock. Looks pretty cool. I've, I've got a question. Is Dwayne The Rock Johnson going to be there? He's in pretty much everything nowadays, so I think the answer has to be yes. I swear, if uh, someone, literally, if the guy in charge looks like Dwayne The Rock Johnson, I will literally die laughing. <laughs> we did see that one kind of cowboy-looking guy that was like, my goal is to protect the people of the Freestar Collective. I, he's resonating with me. Like, damn, <laughs> damn, you can't even protect yourselves properly from the ash, sir. <laughs> yeah, anyway. There was a, um, a dead, like, stuffed uh, taxidermy dash in the rock. Hmm. Next up, of course, we've got New Atlantis. Um, it has a very large spaceport, which we saw extensively in the trailer. It has a train station. I saw somebody pointed out on Reddit recently, you need a visa to enter New Atlantis. Oh, I'm screwed. <laughs> I imagine we'll get it from Constellation, but I wonder if we'll actually be like blocked off from going into New Atlantis until a certain part in the story. Right, this is going to sound um, very messed up, but if there's marriage in Starfield, marry a New Atlantis citizen, and then you'll get citizenship. Get your... <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't resist that. Have an, have an anchor baby to stay in New Atlantis. But I'm sure we'll, uh, there'll be a way to get permanent membership proper way. Yeah. Not, not don't, do, don't do it that way, no. <laughs> I do not condone that. <laughs> um, New Atlantis is on Jemison in Alpha Centauri. 
we'll get to both of those locations later. And also, I'd just like to say, I should have said this at the top of the show. I'm on the tail end of a cold, so if I sound a little funny, that's why. Is your new land is going to be uh, like your city? It's the United Colonies. Yeah, I mean, people like said the tone looks washed out and some sh- like the high def shots. Um, I don't know. I I mean, I brought up why why do I think that is? Um, and and I just put. Well, Alpha Centauri has three suns, right? Yeah. And with our sun, one percent of the UV light gets in. And we all know how that feels. I think it's one percent of like the total UV from the sun. But imagine three suns. Obviously, one's way in the distance. The other two are a bit closer to New Atlantis, but. Think of how hot it would be, climate-wise. I'd imagine it'd be pretty warm most of the time. Maybe even at night. But then again, we'd need to know the atmosphere and, like, uh, the ozone of New Atlantis' uh, planet Jemison uh, to know how much UV light gets in from the sun. Suns. In New Atlantis' concept art, we saw all three of the suns. But I don't even recall a shot of the sky where we could see whether or not they included the suns in the game. I think... Wait, this is just my, like, personal theory. I think they didn't show that because the suns are going to be bright. And if they have, like, the the god rays on lens less, it that's just going to block half the city, right? From, like, the camera. Interesting. But that's just my personal theory. Yeah, like it wouldn't it wouldn't make sense from like a uh, cinematography perspective. I like that. Yeah, that could be the case. What I think is interesting is that if they do have multiple suns, you have to imagine that daytime on New Atlantis is going to be much longer than nighttime. And nighttime might even be a rare thing. I suppose it depends on orbit, how the planet orbits these suns. So do I? I'm not sure how. Um multiple stars in a star system works, will the planet orbit around the two suns and, like, it will switch, like a figure of eight kind of thing? Or if it's just orbiting one and the other star will have its own planets? Or if it's going to be just chaotic? Yeah, Alpha Centauri has three stars, but like you said earlier, the one is really far away, so we can pretty much ignore it. I don't think it would shine much light on Jemison, to be honest. The other two, though, are spinning kind of toward each other in kind of this, um, to my understanding, is that they're just, they're on the same orbit, kind of, just facing each other and spinning around each other. And then the planets are outside of those. So the planets orbit as if the two stars were one sun. Okay. So they're like orbiting around both of them. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say that it would be a nighttime, but I think at one stage. Say if they're in between the two stars, then maybe only a specific part of the planet has a night because you've got light from two angles. Right, yeah. When one sun sets, the other one could still be in the sky. And then it's a less bright day, but it would still be daytime. So, like the. 
only one specific part of the planet would be at night, depending on the rotation. Yeah. And that's the side not facing either of them. What we haven't mentioned yet, um, for me, because I'm in like denial, like they can't do this. In the system map, Alpha Centauri only had one star. I just hope those two suns don't decide to collide and create a supernova, because uh, <laughs> that wouldn't be very fun. Like a supernova would uh, probably annihilate the entire um, settled systems. Probably. I hope the system map was just showing one star for simplicity, and that actually all the stars are there. Mm. But we'll see. They had them in the concept arts. So they got to be in the game, right? course not but. yeah um the next location is probably suspect number one to be this fourth city we know about um cydonia it is on mars in seoul cydonia is a region of mars um it is possibly a city it could also be some sort of mining or industrial operation i think probably mining i think mars has um, I'm not sure about minerals, it definitely has water. There are all these pipes coming out from it. Do you think it could be a water mine? Yeah, it, it's possible, but then wouldn't they be mining at the ice, the poles? Oh, yeah. Where there is actual <laughs> ice. Unless, Probably. Unless there's a mineral on Mars that's very valuable. Or unless... Their facility is literally storage. They're storing something. Or they contain uh, sensitive documentations. Like a research facility or a storage for, like, secrets of, like, uh, New Atlantis or something. I, I don't know. That's just, like, wild theory. Yeah, I'm excited to learn more. I, I love... Now, people were criticizing the the like color palette of new atlantis i think that's fair i love the color palette of cydonia it's it's mars obviously it looks very martian i think they nailed that now mars probably isn't going to be what elon musk is envisioning in starfield unfortunately but uh we get some other cool planets but i wonder what the lore explanation is for that what why did we skip mars or did we skip Mars? Is there a, an old Mars city on Mars? Or is there still a Mars city? Like, what's, what's the story there? Or why didn't we try and uh, terraform Mars? Which, terraforming Mars is going to take a lot longer than 300 years. Um, but, you know, you'd think that process would have begun. But it seems... Or the military power, they've gone further out. Like what, like... SpaceX were aiming to put people on Mars. So why have... Like, what was, what's happened there? Has something happened, or is there still facilities on Mars? That is interesting to think about. Next up, we've got the Crete Research Lab, which as far as the small locations go, we've seen more than any other place. Um, it is the outpost under control of the Crimson Fleet until May 7th, 2330, when a member of Constellation wiped out every single pirate. They assumed control of the research lab on behalf of Constellation, and 
we don't know what the research lab is for. Probably has something to do with the artifact that the player found shortly before. Hmm. Wasn't Crete where the Crimson Fleet expanded from? Um, that was Crix. Oh, had, no, sorry. I looked up the same thing. I was thinking the exact same thing. But it was Crix that they started from. Damn, my brain just died. Uh, yeah, so is that like the start of the game? I don't know. Like... Eliminated all the pirates. Is that like, yeah, is that like our first mission or something? I think so. I, I think my guess is that the way it goes, Todd said it was early in the game. I think we start the game as a miner with Argos extractors. We find this artifact. Constellation is like, whoa, you found this artifact? We need to analyze it. So go to this research lab. It's taken over by pirates, but we need it. So go kill all them. We kill them, and then after we do that, Constellation meets us. We see Barrett after that mission, and he says, so you were the one that saw the, the picked up the art. I forget what he says. So you saw it too, the visions? So we know that this um, battle at the Crete Research Lab is after we found the artifact, but still early in the game. That is, that is an interesting start. Yeah, another reason we know it's early in the game is because all the pirates are level 1 and 2. So, it's not late game stuff, exactly. Yeah. Imagine the final boss is like level 1. <laughs> yeah, interesting stuff there. Next up, we've got the Paradiso Hotel slash Resort. This was shown in like a two-second gameplay clip, but I thought it was interesting because, first of all, it looks really cool. But it's also in a tropical environment, which we've seen in a couple other places. Uh, it looks like a place of leisure in the settled system. So Neon is not the only one of that nature. Tropical? Could that be the jungle world? What do you think? It was like, um, did you see Rogue One? I've seen clips of Rogue One. I haven't really sat down. Okay. There's a planet in Rogue One called Scarith. And the planet that the Paradiso Resort is on reminds me very much of Scarif. Okay. It's like, um, it's like sandy and palm trees. Like what you would imagine around like a tropical resort. Oh, okay, okay. I'm thinking like Florida right now. I mean, like what I picture as Florida, but I know Florida isn't always like how it's portrayed. Yeah. Or, or maybe I'm thinking a bit of Hollywood as well. Hollywood has the palm trees as well, right? Yeah, yeah. I think Florida has palm trees. It does, yeah. Okay, okay. My brain hasn't died again. <laughs> Lastly, and we only saw this briefly as well, we have the Crimson Fleet Command Center. We don't know where this is, and it could even be on a ship, but because of Emil's letter, we know it's most likely in or near Freestar Collective territory because we know that the Crimson Fleet started as just a Freestar Collective problem and eventually expanded to concern the United Colonies as well. As well. Um, the command center could be in Crix, which we think is where the Crimson Fleet originated. It's... Yeah. I think that's going to be an interesting place to discover. Yeah. Either as a covert agent or an outright member of the Crimson Fleet. So now we'll zoom out a little bit and do the planets and moons that we see in the game. 
First up is Crete. It is a mysterious moon of the planet Ancelon. The combat demo takes place here, part of the early game story. It looks volcanic, but not lifeless. So you've got those giant crabs walking around. There's a little thing that kind of looked like a horseshoe crab crawling on the ground. Those larger crustacean things were called Crete stalkers, by the way. Those big crab-like things. They kind of sniffed their claws at us and then kept walking. I'm, I'm just going to call them mud crabs. That works. I think... Crete's gonna mostly just be like good for resources. Yeah, I agree. Because it's volcanic, like it's gonna be like I don't know. Unless, do we want to use obsidian for anything? Because a uh, volcano is a good way to get obsidian. Well, I mean, yeah, you'd, yeah. you'd have to bring water with you, but if the planet has water, that makes things a lot easier. What could you do with Obsidian and Skyrim? I know you could... I know it was in the game. I, I don't think Obsidian was in Skyrim. You had Ebony. Ob Obsidian's in ESO as a oh, crafting that's... style. <laughs> My bad. That's what I'm thinking of. Yeah, it's used as like a styling thing. Yeah, it's uh, tied to one of the racist styles. That's right. But yeah, I agree. I think it's... I thought it was really interesting that when, when your ship first lands there, it looks like it has no life. And then you step off the ship and you see it's actually kind of teeming with life. Um, there were some plants that we the player scanned in that demo too. So that's an interesting one. All right. Next one. Uh, some of these will probably mess up the pronunciation. Oh, well. Alpha Andrasty 2. Um, this is another rocky planet. There's still plenty of life on it, though. It's home of sirens, an aggressive dinosaur-like enemy that kind of lurch forward at the the camera during a combat montage. Now, when you say the word siren, that just reminds me of the creatures from the sea or Siren Head, that uh, like SCP. <laughs> I, I love I, I'm just going to say now I love the way we name planets Earth has the most normal name compared to what we name other planets <laughs> and uh, outside our solar system like we literally call planets something something too or sometimes it doesn't even have a name it's just a string of numbers I, I think yeah there's one later on that's number one it's the first of its kind yeah, apparently. Um, I wonder if, for some of the more obscure solar systems, the planets are just the system name and then a number. Probably makes naming the less interesting planets easier. Yeah, so like Alpha Andraste would be a system, and then Alpha Andraste 2 would be the second planet mm. closest to the sun. Possibly. Yeah, we'll see. We've also got Lantana 3, so presumably the third planet out from its sun, Lantana. It's a foggy, mysterious, and like dreamlike planet, and uh, it was home of the Metropus floaters, which were floating squid-like enemies. 
And I have something to say about the Metropist floaters. I was kind of surprised that they were included in the demo because Fallout 76 had its floaters, of course. And I saw people saying online, like, they just reused floaters from Fallout 76. I was kind of surprised that they included the floaters in the demo just to, like, give people that that avenue of attack. I, I, I mean, there's no shortage of other creatures and stuff to show. So I thought it was interesting that they they chose to show the floaters off. I mean, um, you could even say they're kind of like silt striders in terms of being a squid-like thing with tentacles or whatever that floats through the air. Yeah, I mean, from, from the way I see it, and I'm not saying they did this, it's the still creation engine. Why not reuse that floater code, theoretically, when you're making an enemy very similar? You know, um, not saying they come out of the ground like floaters in 76 do, but what I am saying is the code to like make them float and have their hitboxes in the air. Like, you, if you own the code, why don't you just reuse it? It's, it's from what I heard, literally the way they got multiplayer and creation engine was I don't know if this is accurate but they took the quake free code source code and put it in creation engine they took an engine that Bethesda owned and injected some of the code into it so it's not really it's not an unheard thing to reuse code I mean you might as well What's the point in rewriting everything if you're going to make an enemy very similar to something you've already coded for? And I'm not saying they did this. I'm just saying even if they did, it makes sense. Yeah, I, I wouldn't even blame them if they reused some animations from Fallout 76's floaters. I mean, it's just... Yeah, I mean, not, not even... Smarter, not harder. Yeah, I mean, not even animations. Just like the code to tell the engine how this enemy works. This enemy is above the ground... So their hitbox is not on the ground, the hitbox. Basically that there's an enemy in the air. I, I don't know. I can't even code, so... I'm like the least qualified person, but... One of the episodes we'll probably do in the future is every enemy in the game. So um, we'll be going very deep into that, I'm sure. The last thing I have of note on Lantana 3 is that it has red shrubbery, which could be indicative of like a certain mineral being in the soil or something, perhaps. We will be mining for resources like iron and, and other things, so maybe there's some connection there. Moloch one, so this does line up with our with the idea that number one would be the closest planet to the sun because Moloch one is a very dry, rocky desert planet, and there are towering rock formations that dot the landscape. And uh, the enemy we saw there was the angler hexapod. Um, it almost looks like a cross between a crab and a spider. And I think we saw Moloch 1 in a few concept parts. Do you think they're those, what we've seen in concept art, those like crab things? Or you thinking something else? I, th I think it's very possible. Because, I mean, they could, it was a little different, but they could change, you know, the look of something from concept art to the game. Oh, yeah, you can look at early... BGS concept art, and you can see early designs for stuff. Pretty much even in films, you can see early designs of enemy, like villains, and what designs they're pulling from. You can 
you can see that always in concept art early ideas or and sometimes the early ideas are not possible so i'll give an example uh, in Skyrim, in the concept art, they concepted giant choruses. I'm butchering that word, probably. Um, they had giant versions of those. You know, those horrible, like, alien creatures and black creatures. Or just yeah. Glamour Ruins in general. Uh, with They're tamed by Falmer, which, by the way, ESO, the way they literally tame them is like, be amazingly beautiful. But horrifying at the same time. Not not to make this like test related, but that's kind of cool. Um, but they had like for Skyrim, they had concepted like farmer riding these giant choruses, and for one reason or another, that never got into the engine at all. Or if it was, it was removed, probably because Black Reach wasn't big enough, and also they probably had a bunch of scaling issues. Because they'd literally scale them up, probably, to do it, or make it look good, and then you have animation problems, and movement problems, because um, you can scale the model, but you can't scale everything else, so I, I don't know, like, they ran into limitations with that, but there's definitely a concept out of that, or in Fallout 4, you can see concept of centaurs. Those horrible, disgusting things from Fallout 3 that uh, freak me out. Um, but those, they were going to put them in Fallout 4 at some stage because they had concept art of them, but they scrapped it. Which I assume has to do with them having multiple legs. And that requires its own animation set. Which, you know, like with dogs, you tend to reuse dog animations. At least as far as I know, they probably they might not do that, but reusing animations is probably easier than something having a pure unique animation set that that takes up game de de development. But that's just with that. I don't know where I'm going with this, by the way. But <laughs> I, I'm just saying, like in concept, obviously things change, and what's shown in concept is subject to change sometimes because yeah you know someone can draw whatever they want but someone has to make that thing and then they have to see if it's viable i, I don't know i don't know where i'm going with this but i think it's possible if you know they wanted to change some stuff from concept a little bit yeah interesting i um yeah, I guess they do have a history of that. So, going to the um, the crab-like creatures, the angler hexapods. Um, yeah, I, I would I would say that yes, I think they're probably the same thing. One thing I forgot to do is give like the um, name origins of some of these systems. We're pretty early in the list, so we can just go back. Alpha and Andraste. Andraste was. Um, a war goddess, according to the Roman historian Dio Cassius. She was invoked by Boudica in her fight against the Roman occupation of Britain in AD 60. So that's where Andraste comes from. 
some of these are like dark. Um, Lantana is not. It is a genus of flowering plants. Um, but Moloch is uh, a name that appears in the Hebrew Bible. And the Bible strongly condemns practices which are associated with Moloch. Practices which appear to have included child sacrifice. I'm sorry, can you run that for me again? Moloch, which is a name for a planet and probably a system in Starfield, is named after a figure from the Hebrew Bible. Practices which are associated with Moloch often included child sacrifice. I could have gone my whole life without knowing that. <laughs> I am forever scarred. Thank you, Mitch. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, who knows if that's like a very violent system or hostile to, to life or something, but um, interesting. Next planet is Vectera, which is a moon in the Narion system. Uh Frankly, it seems like one of the boring ones. It has no flora or fauna. Like it's literally just a rock, and it's the location of the player's outpost, which is probably the most interesting thing about it, but I think it sounds like any planet can be the location of the player's outpost. Hmm. It's, it's just a rock. It's pretty much the moon. Like our moon, I don't. I don't know if there's a technical word for our moon. Mm, I think it's Luna. Hello, I'll pull a disclaimer. Um, Mitch was sat underneath air conditioning. So after a quick little Google, it looks like the moon has a few different names. One of them is Luna. It's also known as Selene in Greek, S-E-L-E-N-E. And Cynthia. Those are all perfectly good names for the moon. As far as Victera's name goes, um, the name doesn't really exist. There's an uh, there's an online software called Victera that it makes meetings truly interactive and engaging with powerful whiteboarding, co-browsing, and document annotation. They're not a sponsor. I'm just reading from their website. But you get a couple of Google results for that company, and then you get the Starfield wiki page for Vectera. So it is like a wholly original name. It's, uh, it's got resources too, right? Yeah, it has nine of them. And it doesn't say what they are, but I'd imagine that it's metals, since it's a rock. There were probably some like common metals. If they were like demo it, demo, uh, sorry, if they were demoing it off, still said that word wrong, maybe. Um, but anyway, they were showing off the settlement, I believe. So it seems like you're gonna, there's at least gonna be some basic resources there. Although, if Fallout Four and Seventy Six are anything to go by, get lots and lots of copper and screws. Copper and screws for like crafting weapons and stuff yes and, and concrete lots of concrete in 76 it's always lead i need yeah yeah it is lead i i always find it's lead and steel mm. oh 
because Starfield's on the grounded universe, do you think we're going to have to make steel? Because, like, it's not an ore. There's no, like, steel ore. As far as I know. It's made from iron. We could maybe build, like, foundries or something. One of the things I was talking about with my roommate yesterday was that in Fallout 4, settlements didn't really benefit the player. You just make your villagers happy, and then there's not much more to it than that. In Fallout 76, you can actually get resources from the settlement in in a more meaningful way. You can get traders in Fallout 4, and I think you can get the water purifiers, but um, there was a lot more to the resource production in 76, and I imagine Starfield would go that route too, as far as like making you know a drill or something, and you can get the planet's resources. Well, I was thinking if they did something like No Man's Sky, and I, I'm not, <laughs> everyone's in the Starfield community is probably sick of the No Man's Sky comparisons. But in that game, you can survey mineral rich zones and what mineral that land contains, and you can literally set up all these drills. And uh, I have farms and farms and farms of those, of like expensive materials in that game. Doesn't make sense, but in Starfield, you'd probably need to space them out more because settlement rules and. Um, but something like that, so you can like survey planets and you can find like mineral rich zones and then you can build a base around that and like set up a mining colony and then, I don't know, maybe have those resources transferred to your other settlement on the planet where you refine them and then they go to your main settlement. I don't know. It's probably not even going to happen, but like, you get what I'm trying to say. Multiple settlements, then you like have one for different things, and then you have your main one. Yeah. If if we take a planet like Vectera, for example, or a moon like Vectera, it has nine resources. I would hope that those nine resources aren't evenly distributed all around the planet. Like, um, not that it necessarily has to have completely different biomes on the planet. But if I go into one region, I don't want there to be all nine resources. I want there to be one that's like, oh, you have to go over here, up towards the poles or something like that in order to find that. So it would be cool if where you built your outpost was a determining factor in what resources you can mine. Hmm. And then, of course, you can become a tycoon off of a planet by draining its resources. Yeah. Oh, uh, we can be corrupt in Starfield. Tell us about Jemison. Jemison is a great. It's the best planet to ever exist. Um, you should definitely visit it. Uh, it's better than uh, wherever Aquila City is. That's a that's a joke. I disagree. Yeah. So. Jemison's in the Alpha Centauri system and the home of the United Colonies and where New Atlantis is. Oh, and Constellation HQ. Oh, how could I forget that? Uh, it's in the oxygen atmosphere. Temperate climate. And it has abundant flora and fauna. And the, the gravity on Jemison is 0.91 G. Or Earth's gravities. So, it's it's pretty much like New Earth, right? Yeah, like, 
yeah, I think the difference is just marginal. It shouldn't, I mean, humanity would have to evolve to it a little bit, but not as much as, say, Mars. Yeah. Um, one way that's easy to think about gravity measurements like this is that um, somebody who weighs 200 pounds on Earth would weigh, uh-oh, my math's not very good, 182 on Jemison. And um, you could do the same uh, measurement for kilos, but I'm not sure what what the average person weighs. All I know is I'm a little underweight. That works. You'll be able to jump even higher on Jemison. I can start the uh, space program early. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Just jump. So in real life, there's a planet in Alpha Centauri uh, called Alpha Centauri CB, and it's a refuted exoplanet, which means some astronomers say it doesn't exist, others say it does. It has been calculated to possess about 92% of Earth's gravitational strength, which is just 1% off of what Jemison is. I thought maybe that exoplanet could be the inspiration for Jemison, or like canonically what Jemison is. But the thing about Alpha Centauri CB is that it's tidally locked to its parent star, which means one hemisphere always faces a star while the other hemisphere is always facing away from it. And we have seen both daytime and nighttime in New Atlantis through concept art. I don't think we saw gameplay at night, but we did see concept art. Yeah, we, we saw gameplay in the daytime. So, so w w with this, an exoplanet, that's a planet that's like Earth, right? That's what they call them, I think. Yes. Yeah. Well, planet, you know, they think that's like Earth. I mean, it's hard to tell when we're stuck on this rock and we're trying to look at another rock. It's actually a little broader than that. I looked up the definition. It's a planet that orbits a star outside the solar system, so it doesn't it doesn't necessarily have to oh, okay. be like Earth or support life, that sort of thing. Yeah, that. Nah, yeah, that's interesting. I'm glad to be uh, wrong on that. I've just seen that term thrown around, so... Good to know. I was looking at real-life exoplanets in Alpha Centauri and saw one that had 0.92 gravity, so I'm like, wait a minute. That's really, really close to Jemison. But I, I don't think it's the same planet. Yeah, it's like... Well, I said this a bit ago, it's like... Um... We're on Earth and we're looking at a planet so far away that we can hardly make it out. Although with telescopes, you know, the, uh, uh, I'm forgetting the name of the new one. Like an idiot. Oh, it's, um, I am too. D James Webb. That's it. Like, maybe, I don't know, that's a powerful telescope. As the further it gets out, the better images we'll get. More detailed. I don't know what direction that's going in, but... Like, the James Webb and Hubble tell it they move, right? Or do they stay in orbit? James Webb stays at the same point in orbit, at one of the Lagrange points. Okay, okay, you can scrap what I was saying then. Because I, I assumed it was just travelling in space and sending information back and forth. Well, actually, I mean, I guess... I guess it is moving through space, but it stays in the same spot relative to Earth. 
Okay. Yeah, you can just cut that, what I was saying, um, before I said it. Okay. I just sound like a big dum-dum. <laughs> no, no, I assume they just, like, took the telescope, and you know, like, the satellites that they just send in a direction, and sometimes they'll send back images and stuff. Mm-hmm. I was assuming that. They just, like, shot it in a direction. Oh, okay. Because they've done that before. They've sent things to, like, take pictures of Jupiter... Uh, Neptune, I think Neptune. Yeah. Like uh, Voyager, which we just mm. yeeted. Like out oh, of the no, oh no, Voyager. Have you heard the sounds that Saturn and Jupiter make through like the gas and space? Yeah. That Jupiter, sure, it sounds creepy, but Saturn is like a horror film. We're going off topic from Starfield, but. The sounds the planets make. I haven't heard what the sun sounds like, but the thing that reminded me of this was NASA recently posted a tweet on one of their accounts saying the misconception is there's no sound in space because it's a vacuum, but there's sound through gas or something. That there's other ways to monitor sound, not just the way we hear sound. And I saw a comment from like the Saturn and Jupiter ones like the, because Voyager was a long time ago. That was like the nineties, wasn't it? Um, there were two Voyagers. I think the first one might have been in the seventies. Okay, I think the one I heard was from like from nineties or early two thousands, maybe. But the thing is, think think of it like this: it's creepy, but someone late at night probably sat in a lab. Receiving these audio clips turn into a frequency humans could hear and then they hear Saturn and Jupiter. I don't think those scientists would have slept that night. You should you should definitely listen to what Jupiter and Saturn sound like. It is really like it's the stuff of nightmares. Especially Saturn, like Jupiter's tame compared. I hope those uh, spacecrafts are doing okay. They're really far away. Uh, the aliens have got them, probably. They're, they've probably got that. Oh, we've gone so off topic, it's uh, comedic how often we do that. But, uh, uh, what was that spacecraft that we, like, put a golden disc, record disc on it, with, like, human oh, history? Yeah. That was Voyager 2. Well, Voyager as well. I think it was Voyager 1. Yeah, like that. Some aliens probably like got that by now and just laughing at us. Look at this less advanced species. It is scary. And just do us one more thing before we jump back into the topic. People think a species that could be a thousand years more advanced than us or ten thousand years more advanced of us, advanced than us if they can reach Earth. Think about how old the universe is. And then think about the earliest point where a civilization could have formed. There could be a species that are millions of years old. More advanced than us, sorry. There's a scary thought. And we definitely won't be worth their time. We'll be like cavemen, Neanderthals. I think the last thing on Jemison is that it is named after Mae Jemison, who is the first black woman in space. 
Oh, really? Yeah. So for a lot of the planets and even more of the systems, um, they're named after famous people in the history of space exploration. That makes sense. And it's kind of cool because that's not something you'd immediately... Especially if you're just like... If you're not like us and you just see Starfield next year being advertised and you go, oh, I'm going to play that game. You see all these planets and they, they could play the whole game and have no idea that that planet was named after a person who went to space. Yeah, I had never heard of Mae Jemison before, you know, before we found out about Jemison, the planet in Starfield. Um, and I'd also not heard of Kalpana Chawla, who was the first person of Indian origin to go into space, uh, first woman of Indian origin to go into space. And uh, she has a planet named after her as well, which is Chawla. Uh, it's the barren but resource-heavy ice ball, and it's a moon of all of us, which is a gas giant in Alpha Centauri. I'm, uh, for the record, after hearing what Saturn and Jupiter sound like, which are both gas giants, I don't think I'd be comfortable on this planet, on this moon. Sorry. In one of the shots from the the gameplay demo that. I think really resonated with people. Like I see, saw a lot of people sharing the screenshot. It's the snowy landscape and the, the ground is almost like cracked. There are canyons and stuff in the ground. That is on Chala. In the sky, you can see all of us and um, it's snowy and icy. So it probably is a little scary seeing that gas giant up in the sky, but uh, it looks beautiful. And this was also the one that was in the system map uh, when Todd made the comment about uh, from barren but resource-heavy ice balls, we were looking right at Chala when he said that, so that's how we know that this is a barren but resource-heavy ice ball. Hi. It, on your notes, it says it's got a CO2 atmosphere. Yes. Venus has a CO2-heavy atmosphere. Wow. I say CO2 heavy, it's like 97% or something like that. It's in the 90s, I think, on Venus. And that's why it's like an oven. It is not enough oxygen. I think Mars is very high as well. I think with Venus, it's the... I don't know if it has an atmosphere. That's like trapping. So in like the daytime, yeah, it's really hot and at night it's freezing. Something like that. I'm just like comparing because I know Venus has a high CO2 level. So, I just thought it's interesting that this is an ice ball, but Venus is... Well, I suppose Venus is right next to the sun. Yeah, it is really interesting though because... CO2, to my understanding, is what causes like the greenhouse effect and a lot of warming. So Chala, with its CO2 atmosphere, is icy. It's just unexpected, I guess. Maybe it's got a CO2 atmosphere, but maybe it just means there's more CO2 than the oxygen. So it's maybe like 60, 40 or higher. Unless it has a very thin atmosphere. 
and it's not as trapped as, say, Venus. If I've got anything wrong about Venus, uh, you can correct me in the comments. Because I'm by no means a scientist or an expert on Venus. I'm going off knowledge that I remember. So, I'd, so yeah, I'd, I'd appreciate if, um, if I'm wrong and someone knows, just call me out on it. It's cool. Yeah, I don't think anyone expects us to be perfect with some of this stuff because there's a lot of info. I just like have knowledge from documentaries that I watched like seven years ago. Mm. As far as the gravity goes, Chala has 0.43 Earth gravity, so we can jump a little more than twice as high on Chala than on Earth. And then also the the one thing I forgot to mention about Kalpana Chawa was that uh, she was tragically killed in a space shuttle mission called STS-107, which is more commonly known as the Columbia disaster in 2003. So a nice little gesture to name this moon after her. I, I can't imagine being an astronaut and your final moments are in an accident, a disaster in space. That'd be horrifying. Yeah, the, the unfortunate thing about the Columbia disaster too is that it was caused by a piece of insulating foam that ran into the wing and then kind of broke the, the layer of the wing that protected it from heat. So as soon as that happened, a few uh, seconds after liftoff, there was nothing that could be done uh, when they re-entered the atmosphere because it would it was kind of inevitable that it would burn up with that heat protecting surface compromised. Mm. That's that's horrifying. And NASA knew about the the foam strike, but they didn't think it was critical the way that it was. Always, always try and fix these things. Can't be too safe. Yeah, it's it's not just a disaster itself. Obviously, you've got. I mean, yeah, because. Yeah, because people lost their lives. That's tragic, but also. It doesn't look very good for NASA. Like the yeah, there's sure. there's a fallout effect to it. NASA gets a scolding. There's problems. And but it's, I suppose they learn from these mistakes. NASA is publicly funded, of course, too, so that is another challenge. When when you have people lose their lives on a mission for NASA, then mm. some funding issues might come out of that. And I think there there was some, like you said, some fallout, but NASA well, has been doing really well the last few years. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, in general, there's always fallout to something. Um, when there's something, especially if something's televised, I'm not sure if this was televised, but I assume maybe it was at the time. I think yeah, most of the most of the launches and, and space shuttle landings were because this this was uh, 2003. Yeah. So we're talking like dial-up internet days. 
early broadband where you could hardly download an image or a flash game so TV was the one way you would go back then the last planet that we saw and this is another one in Alpha Centauri is Gagarin and Gagarin is a cool name because it is named after Yuri Gagarin the first human to ever enter space I didn't know who the first person to go into space was for a very long time. And that's because in the U.S., of course, we had the big space race with the Soviets. The Soviets won the part of the space race where you just go into space and orbit the Earth. Yuri Gagarin did that before the United States did. Of course, the United States went to the moon first, but um, they didn't really tell us in school that Yuri Gagarin was the first person in space. <laughs> Yeah, I, f I think with the US, it was more the US were the first to land and actually leave the moon, get back. Maybe. I'm not really sure. Yeah, we were the first to get to the moon, which is what my education focused on a lot. But we were not the first ones to get into space. Which, which is like a miracle, right? Because the odds were against them because they were having problems. They had to slingshot around the moon or something. Yeah, I, I don't think any any mission you can expect to go perfectly, but yeah, uh, that one, Apollo 11, I want to say. Yeah, it was, it was 11. Um, yeah. Because they lost communications for like two minutes when they went around the moon. They lost communications while they were, I think, it, I think they were slingshotting. They were going around the moon so they could shoot straight to Earth. It must have been terrifying. We're on the other side of the moon first person to ever see the other side of the moon but yeah. while you're while you're there you lose contact with earth wow. uh, i've seen conspiracies that said they heard they heard weird sounds and weird stuff but they lost communication it's probably just like garbled signals right possibly yeah probably it might have been just like static probably was terrifying though you got like a distorted oh, yeah. voice or something because the signals just dropped i don't know i'm only assuming here and I don't know if those reports were ever true. I, I don't really read conspiracies, but some of them I find myself watching a YouTube video on. Yeah, it's interesting stuff, even if you don't subscribe to it necessarily. Yeah. So the planet Gagarin in Starfield, it's, has a, it's a very small planet. It's in a very tight orbit to Alpha Centauri star. In that way, it kind of reminds me of uh, Mercury has 0.89 Earth gravities and an oxygen atmosphere with moderate flora and fauna. So there is life on Gagarin. It's good that some planets have life. Yeah. I wonder if we saw this one in the demo. Um, maybe that one, I don't know if I'll be able to explain it properly, but there was one where we saw like the um, protagonist like standing on a ridge or something and they were overlooking like a valley. It was kind of strange looking but i thought maybe that might have been gagarin hopefully i'll find an image of the shot i'm talking about and we'll get it on screen and then also on your gagarin there's a portrait of him in constellations headquarters so that's probably not really connected to the planet gagarin but I, I, i'm sure they just have the portrait because he's an important figure in uh, space exploration but still it's a nice tribute picture i suppose yeah though so if you don't know who yuri is you're just gonna 
brush it off as a developer or some fictional character. Maybe. Yeah, which which I think is kind of neat. Because, like, you have to know to know who it is. We get someone from NAS to play the game. That'd be like... Look at this. I think BGS, they... I know they talked to SpaceX, but didn't, I think they talked to NASA as well. Um, yeah, I thought they went to Cape Canaveral, which is where NASA's... It's one of the two places that NASA's kind of based out of. There's like a museum there and stuff. Are you ready to move on to those systems? Yep. There are... Six, seven, eight, nine that we know about so far. Plus Alpha Centauri, but we've talked about that extensively. Um, so 10, I guess. But Soul is the first one. What's interesting about Soul? I think it's boring. Soul, Soul is very boring. Um, I can't really explain why. Um, it's not like I lived, lived in Soul or anything. Yeah, I think the only thing noteworthy about Soul is that it's where everyone listening to this is, I hope. <laughs> Imagine if that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> it got some, like, aliens in orbit tuning in. Oh, boy. And it's presumably the location of Cydonia, Soul, so, as well as all of us. Hopefully everyone knows what Soul is, and I'm assuming everyone will. Yeah. And it's the origin of humanity, and in in the real world, it's the only place we know life to exist in the universe, and uh, it's just a boring one. Crix. Crix is kind of cool from a lore perspective. It is the system that the Crimson Fleet Command Center is possibly located. So we talked about the Crimson Fleet Command Center as one of the um, specific locations. It might be in Crix, because if you remember... Pasquale Logan wrote that letter that was on Emil Pagliarulo's computer screen, and uh, it hinted that the Crimson Fleet is originally from Crix. That was where they were founded or whatever. So it would only make sense that the Crimson Fleet Command Center is on Crix. Now, the Crimson Fleet Command Center could also be a ship. What do you think about that as far as the Command Center being a ship versus on a, on a planet or moon? Well, the thing with a planet is... If you get invaded, you're kind of screwed. You can't really go anywhere. I mean, you can defend yourself, but, you know, they know where you are. Now, if you had a ship, you'd be mobile, technically. Might not move that quickly, but, you know, if your ship's big enough, it's a mobile base. Move it around a little bit. But a, a base is much better for an origin. Maybe they have bases and they also have ships as, like, backups. I maybe the place is heavily defended by the Crimson Fleet. Yeah, there is really no way to tell where it is from the gameplay because you just see, like, computer terminals and stuff. What would you prefer? Maybe that's a better question. I'd prefer a massive capital ship, like the size of the Superstar Destroyer or something. But they're, they're pirates. They're not going to have a ship that big. So, I don't know. Half the size of a Star Destroyer. Like, at biggest. Especially if they've stolen it. 
But then again, we don't know how big ships are and stuff. Like, how big they can be. We haven't really seen that scale. Or even if they have that scale, because... Like, a ship that size, yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of using my imagination for, like, sizes. Because if you're going to have a command center, it's either going to be a base or it's going to be a big ship. In my eyes, anyway. But obviously, in a grounded world, it's probably not realistic to have something the size of a full Star Destroyer. Yeah, I agree. And presumably, if they were to make a ship that big, it would have to be, like, modularly constructed, because it seems like the way they're doing all the ships. Mm. I think there's concept of how, like, they built the Star Destroyers. Like, these rings and, like, planet orbits... Or like in Star Trek, how they upgraded the Enterprise. They like had docking stations in orbit. The ship would dock and then they'd remove parts and place them in over over several months. Giving it a second thought though, there was the concept art where we saw those crashed capital ships. So they, they are in the universe. That's true. I, I suppose they're like... I don't know if, I don't know if I'd call them capital ships. More than I think there were warships because of how many there were. Mm, yeah. I feel like you only need one capital rather than two or three. I think you need one. One big one surrounded by slightly smaller ones that aren't. And obviously you have to make that distinction in space with space being dark. You'd have to have a bright color stripe, stripes or know, some sort of pattern to be able to tell so when people look up at your ship, they can go, oh, that's the capital, because that one's painted this way. I, I don't know, I'm throwing like, my fury hat into the arena. <laughs> yeah. No, I, that's that's absolutely true. And that's a very important concept, or, I guess, l looking at it after seeing the demo, because we didn't see any ships that big anywhere else. Even in New Atlantis, you would think some would be docked or whatever so i wonder if they'll only be in the game as crashed ships on that planet i think it might depend how a big ship would handle because if it's actually a movable movable object it like travels around the system at a pace if it's big enough you want to dock in it surely there would be collision problems Like, you're trying to reach the hangar, and then the collision is, like, slightly off with both your, sh your ship model and that ship model, and you just bounce off or, like, damage them, and then they start attacking you or something. I don't know. Yeah, Whereas, sure. I think if it was a static object, it'd be... It won't move. But, I don't know. I think... Ugh. I don't know how they're doing it, so... I'm just assuming here. I'm just thinking from like a model standpoint. I think if the big ships are not in the game, they have the okay explanation that they all got lost in the colony war. I mean, I guess that holds up, but not really. <laughs> or maybe you only see them around like New Atlantis. The very few that remain. 
And as soon as you get closer to planet, cutscene land, done. You don't really get to look at it for very long. Yeah, I guess we didn't see all of New Atlantis. I don't know if the little choose your destination map would show. Something like that. I feel like a, if it, a fairly big ship getting away. I like the map. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. I wonder how they'll how they'll do the big ships. But coming back to Cricks, we're just we're all over the place today, and I I love it though. For the spelling that's used in Starfield, K R Y X, the name doesn't really exist anywhere. But K R I X is an actual name, and the name means ruler, good person, or influencer. Crix was also a Trandosian bounty hunter in Star Wars. So that could be in one place they picked it up. So next we have the Narion system, which is the home of Vectera. Uh, the Crimson Fleet has, has or had established a foothold there. According to UC Fleet Admiral Pascal Logan's uh, report. So. I think this is where the Crimson Fleet, like, different leaders come into it. it there's a different leader in each system. Which might sound obvious, but. You know. It would be cool if one of the ways we took down the Crimson Fleet was by, like, eliminating the leader in each system and then eventually getting to Cricks and getting rid of the. The full leader. I suppose that would be a way to weaken them. Say it's too difficult to just attack their main system. You have to kind of like weaken them by the defeating the other captains. So they become weaker. I, I don't know. From a gameplay perspective, sure. But like, you know. Then you've got the... Wouldn't they get more defensive about their home system? I don't know. Yeah. As far as... um. As far as the name goes, what's really funny is that when you Google search Narian, you get a character from Elder Scrolls Online who has that name. And I have a feeling that they named this character after the planet in Starfield. <laughs> um, it's a Bosner found near the Falinesti Spring site in Greenshade. Uh, she is a member of the Hounds of Hercene and is tracking a powerful mammoth. And there's a little quest uh, with her called Hunting the Mammoth. But <laughs> this character in Elder Scrolls Online has a Starfield planet for her name, and uh, no one noticed. Hmm. That's uh, that's suspicious. Yeah, kind of like an, an Easter egg be before it was actually an Easter egg or something. Pro probably Bethesda named it after them, or they just came up with the word. Yeah, I think so. It did show up on a list of names below the... <laughs> the wiki page for Neri on the NPC. Um, but it was like the 14,000th most popular name, which is very low, I think. Yeah, I, I can't say I've ever come across someone called that. No, me neither. The next one, however, Cheyenne, I know, is a more popular name. It's another system that the Crimson Fleet is establishing itself in. We don't know much more about Cheyenne than we do Narian. Actually, less because we haven't seen a planet there. 
It could be named after the Cheyenne Mountain Space Force Station in El El Paso County, Colorado. So the Space Force was a somewhat recently established branch of the military. I believe it was going to be its own branch, but it's now a subdivision of the Air Force. And what they did is they converted a few Air Force bases and stations into Space Force bases and stations. And one of them was the Cheyenne Mountain Space Force Station. Same spelling as the planet in Starfield. I think it's just a coincidence, but um, there's a little space connection there. So next we have the Sagan system, and every time I hear this, I think of the Sega Saturn for some reason. No idea why, it doesn't make any sense. Um, but this is another Crimson Fleet established foothold. So, if you like the Crimson Fleet, you're going to love these systems. But the system was named after legendary astronomer and astrobiologist Carl Sagan. Carl Sagan's best known scientific contributions are related to extraterrestrial life. The Sagan system could possibly be teeming with life. Hopefully. Be a bit on the nose, but, you know, we can hope. That's true, yeah. It would just make sense, though, if they found this system. Like, wow, all these, pretty much all these planets have life on them. Let's name them after, you know, the guy that pioneered a lot of astrobiology. I'm really hoping there's a system called the Howard system. Oh, yes. (laughs) There really should be. The one at the center of the universe. Yeah, they're going to call the, uh... yeah, they're going to name a, a giant, super giant star, the Howard. <laughs> a class H star. Yeah. Next planet is Lunara, which is, you know, very close to the, the moon's name, which is sort of interesting. It's the last system that the Crimson Fleet is establishing a foothold in. And uh, Lunara is a Muslim girl's name. And the other thing about the name Lunara is that there was a canceled Japanese moon program that was going to launch from the Kagoshima Space Center, and it was named Lunar-A. And Lunar-A was going to enter an elliptical orbit around the moon and then deploy two penetrators on opposite sides of the lunar body, so the moon. And these uh, penetrators were going to penetrate the upper moon dust layers of the lunar surface and reach the solid rock that lies underneath. Underneath the dust on top, it's very solid rock. And it was going to analyze that and and learn about what it's composed of. And uh, it was originally scheduled to launch in August 2004. It kept getting delayed and delayed. And ultimately, it was canceled in January 2007. And that probably doesn't have any hints about the composition of the Lunar system or what we can find there, but a cool little rabbit hole that shared a name with the system. Well, I suppose we haven't been to the moon to, like, drill for samples, I suppose. Yeah, I think, as far as I know, there's still a lot we don't know about what's what's in the moon. Right, I'm gonna, gonna sound like a massive idiot, but... There's going to be cheese under there, I'm telling you. There's going to be lots of cheese, just wait. 
The nursery rhymes told me. There has to be cheese under there. Has to be cheese. I watched Wallace and Gromit. A grand day out. I think that's what it's called. And he's literally eating cheese on the moon. The moon is cheese. Why would Wallace and Gromit lie to me? <laughs> now I'm getting hungry. Got a cheese sandwich. The next system, since we have a host from the UK, I'll kick it over to you, Ezra. You should like this one. Okay, so the next system is called Jaffa. Not related, but uh, I like Jaffa cakes. They're very good. If you're in the US, you have to have them imported. Very nice cakes. Uh, but anyway, so yeah, in the Jaffa system, we don't really know anything about this system. But maybe it's important, right? Maybe? Yeah, yeah, it could be. First of all, I hope an entire planet is made of Jaffa cakes. I've never had them before, but I've heard so many good things. Yeah, you're um, missing out. Yeah, I really think I am. But there's some interesting like etymology going on with the name Jaffa. I only, I also only knew that name because of the the tasty treat across the pond. But Jaffa used to be a city and port on the Mediterranean coast of Israel, in like the biblical lands, and it was purported as the location of the Greek mythological mythological tale of Perseus and Andromeda. Of course, the significance of Andromeda space and stuff is that it's our closest galaxy. Andromeda's mother, Cassiopeia, boasted that she was more beautiful than uh, Nereids, which were sea nymphs that accompanied Poseidon, the god of the sea. And in response, Poseidon sent the sea monster Cetus to ravage the coast of uh, Ethiopia. Ethiopia starting with an A, not the, the similarly sounding African country that starts with an E. But uh, to, to sate Cetus, Andromeda is trained, tra chained to a rock on the Ethiopian shore. And then she is saved from death by Perseus, who is a hero in Greek folklore. And he married Andromeda and took her to Greece to reign as queen. All of that supposedly happened at this rocky shore called Jaffa. So with that story in mind, could Jaffa maybe be like a, a prison or kind of be seen as some type of place that relates back to this story where... Andromeda was, was chained to die and then eventually saved. I don't know, but could be some, probably reaching, probably reaching a lot, but maybe there's something there. I'm, I'm going to stick with it. Uh, the, the Jaffa cakes. That's the more, the more friendly option. Yeah. That's what I'll stick with too. So could you imagine if they called the system Jaffa cakes? Maybe. Maybe the system is Jaffa, and there's a planet or a moon called Cakes. That or is a, cake. That that is my kind of planet. If there's a planet just called Cakes, I I will settle on that planet. <laughs> yeah, build <laughs> every single playthrough. That's where the settlement goes. I I will build an empire there if it's like not habited, but if it's not inhabited by others, I will make a city there, and we're gonna you know. Cake City, I don't know. I think that would be funny. There's uh, a planet called Cakes. No, no. Actually, this brings me to another idea, and this one's completely wild. Like, no evidence, just would be cool. If one of these like uninhabited planets, that, like 
the ones with like no major things going on. I'm wondering if we set up a base that's big enough or like we basically dominate that world if we could maybe rename it and call the planet what we want to planet mm. planet naming it's a wild guess but ah oh, that'd be so cool I, i'm not expecting it but i just think you know because thinking like a a random planet name called cakes uh, just imagine I could call my planet Earth 2, or New Earth, or New New Earth, or just call it Big Round Sphere in the Sky. I could see something like that happening, maybe in the context of missions with Constellation, where you're exploring the outer reaches of the settled systems, and maybe you're the first person to visit a planet or something, and maybe there's like isolated cases where you can name planets in a, in certain systems but um i th i think because the settled systems has already been settled i guess for a century and a half at least we know i think it might be like i think some of the the ones closer to soul at least i think those names are going to be set in stone but yeah that would be definitely. it's it would be another no man's sky trope that i it would be cool to see carry over yeah, and it kind of gives you an attachment to a world, in a way. Because you, you name that planet. I mean, you could do what you do in No Man's Sky, just name planets random things and never go back to them. But I feel like in the game like Starfield, naming your planet, like naming just a planet, would just be so cool. I don't think we'd ever get to name a system, because I think most systems will have something going on um, but just like a, a planet that you can say you named I think that would be amazing but again I'm not expecting that I'm just yeah. it's kind of cool thing to think about yeah and even if they can't find this the space for the player to name their own planets or moons I think they could at least let us name our settlements our outposts I, I think that would be a cool consolation yeah, and even with Outpost, well, I hope because they're not doing last gen, they're doing current gen. I, I'm really hoping we can have mega large settlements. Uh, that's just a dream. Because in Fallout 4, it was quite restricting the bigger you built. And you could only have like 20 people in your settlement and it didn't quite feel as good as a city I'm just hoping we can like actually build our own city like if they've got the NPC management like you can have maybe a hundred NPCs going on I think yeah I can build a small city with that I'd love that in particular because it feels like I've built this and there's lots of people doing stuff there's like an economy going on here there's trade routes uh, between my settlement planets, which was something we talked about a few episodes ago. That's something I'd like to see. Uh, you know, like, the, uh, just to bring anyone that hasn't seen that episode, like the Brahmin caravans. And But instead, uh, Brahmins, obviously, because there are no Brahmins. Um, uh, there's, like, spaceships. 
and there'll be like a spaceship that will travel between the planets and you can see it take off and stuff and that'll be your supply line or there might be multiple to maybe make it more realistic because space is huge and then you know they've got to travel supplies kind of cool i just want to i'd like to build something bigger than what we had in fallout 4 so that that's my hope we can build like mini cities and stuff yeah yeah i i share that hope what we have going for us is that when in the demo when the player like placed down that outpost beacon the radius was huge i think way bigger than pretty much any fallout 4 settlement and a lot bigger than Fallout 76's camps. Yeah, I I noticed, like, I think they set up, like, wind turbines or something in the distance, and when they're on, I think they go back to the middle, and in the distance, like, the radius is huge. It really is. But I'm wondering, is that the edge? I think in that space, you could definitely build a mini-city. Mm -hmm. You probably wouldn't have room to, like, build a grand entrance without it cutting in to your land. So you'd have, like, a bunch of space at the front because of the dome, like, area. You have to make, a, like, a, an entrance kind of thing. I don't know. I think you, defi you definitely could put a silly in there. Although, yeah, I think so. Although that one has, like, a cliff, so that might make it a bit complicated. But I'm hoping there's, like, elevator parts that can, like, transition between sections or something. Like, you know, like, high elevation, if there's a cliff, then the elevator will take you down to the ground floor. Yeah. I don't want to set the bar too high for outposts, but I'm picturing things like that, like the elevator. Imagine a piece that's a landing pad that you can put anywhere you want in the settlement, and then trader ships will land, and you can talk to the pilot and barter with them like stuff like that could make the outpost so alive or, or i'm really excited to see what they do there even your you know like the player in one in fallout 4 in like one settlement each you can place the special map and that will change the fast travel location on that settlement i'm hoping there's a spaceship port i guess like landing pad and that's specifically for your ship. So every time you go to land at that settlement, you will land on your own pad, and no other NPC can use that pad but you. I, I just, I just be cool. You get your own like private landing pad. That would be cool, and that could even be a separate piece from the, the other one that brings in merchants or whatever. Yeah, so it could be like the fast travel marker from Fallout Four, just for your yeah. ship. That's really cool stuff. And um, this this is all wild guesses, but yeah, important uh, disclaimer. Yeah, so don't take it as fact, obviously. The next system we have is Vol Two, and this is another one we don't really know anything about. So all we can do is research the name, and there's not much you can find there. Vol, V O L. It's often it's often short for volcano. So maybe that's something we're we're dealing with a volcanic very hot planet hostile to life um more typically vol is short for volume in a series of like periodical textbooks so vol 2 we have no idea it was just one of the stars in the galaxy map unfortunately there's really not much to dig into with that one 
There is some stuff we can dig into with the next one, though. Isra? Uh, so the next one is called Porridge. Sorry. <laughs> I couldn't help. <laughs> <laughs> so the next one is Porima, a.k.a. the Gamma Virginis. And it's a binary star system in the constellation of Virgo. Uh, and the system is 39 light years away from Sol. It's... It's not too far away. Well, in the uh, grand scheme of the universe, it's, it is just not a very big distance, but in terms of travel, it's definitely quite a long way. Kind of getting close to the edge of the settled systems, but still, still well within the confines, according to yeah. that 50 light year measurement we have. By the way, I want to bring up Porima. I think that could be where Neon is, if we don't know what Neon system is. Just a hunch? I believe Neon, if anywhere in the settled systems, it'd be on the edge. And I say that because Aurora is legal on that planet. So that's kind of gives me an idea that they're on the outskirts where they don't really, the two political factions don't really care. But they do care if you bring it outward outside neon because then you're entering their territories so i think neon could be potentially on the edge because it's kind of like the gambling hotspot everyone will go there i don't know i think i think somewhere like neon would be on the edge of somewhere like the settled systems because of what it is and what happens there I don't. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, I don't think uh, the Free Star Collective or United Colonies would particularly want in their main territories this gambling city that's known for illegal activities. I think it's going to be on the edge. Uh, think like Tatooine. The uh, the Empire uh, and the Republic. They didn't care about Tatooine because it was on the edge of the galaxy. Think it was on the edge it was like on yeah. the outer rim like they didn't care about tattooing because it wasn't it was on the outskirts and not they kind of left it alone because it was so far out so i think maybe with neon that's kind of it i'll explain it later but i don't know what you think about that yeah yeah i think that's probable even like um it kind of ties back to like many points in human history where wherever is on the frontier is going to be more lawless and um, more freedoms for better or for worse and uh, I think Neon could be another example of that where it's it's near that, that 50 light year boundary, rough boundary of the settled systems and because of that there's not as much governance and more more lax laws and people flock yeah. there for that reason because uh, like neon if it's so far out what's the point of even chasing them but if someone's smuggling illegal substances out of neon into the main systems then yeah they're gonna go for that i just feel like somewhere like neon would have to be on the outskirts maybe it's not but that's just the way i look at it 
you know, with the aurora, the gambling. I know you could guess there's going to be, like, I don't know, drug wars going on. Or, like, gangs, like Mafia or something. Which isn't confirmed, but it's uh, the Pleasure City. So, I don't know, it sounds like a place that that stuff could happen easily. And I don't think the United Colonies or Freestar Collective would particularly want that in them deep in their systems like the systems they own it's not really a good thing you want in your systems it's a very dangerous gambling city that has illegal substances Definitely agree, and that's one of the reasons I'm so excited for smuggling missions, because that could get really tense if you're trying to take this stuff that's only legal on the in, in on the planet you're leaving, and try to take it into United Colonies territory or, you know, somebody in their in their dark little apartment in in New Atlantis wants to get their hands on some Aurora. Can you bring it to me? Yeah, you especially security. If if neon's on the outer edge, you have to fly a long way to smuggle it. So the chances are you're going to run into some authorities in that journey. Yeah. Yeah, that's really exciting stuff. I just had that thought and I was like, yeah, it should be, oh, Neon would be so cool on the edge because it'd make more sense. Uh, so the traditional name Porima derives from ancient Rome and Pro. Porima was an ancient goddess of prophecy. So, pretty cool. Yeah, it's fun learning about these name origins. And I don't know how many, if any of them, actually inform what we'll find in the system, but it's still just good like background knowledge to know. That's the best we can do right now. So those are all the systems that we know about. Or, I'm sorry, those are all the systems that we saw. But there's one other that I think we know about. And uh, if you follow Lorefield on Twitter, then you will have seen our thread on this some time ago. But the Freestar Collective, I think we've, ne we've never known what system it's in. But I think we can figure it out based on uh, the Freestar Collective's logo and some, other, some basic knowledge of the real world sky. So Aquila City... Uh, home of the Freestar Collective. The Freestar Collective's logo is, of course, an eagle, and at the head of the eagle is a, a star. And in the real world, there's a constellation called Aquila, very close pronunciation to Aquila. And in fact, some people will pronounce Aquila as Aquila, though I think the Aquila pronunciation is correct. But anyway, in this constellation is, is an eagle, and at the head of the eagle is a star called Altair. Altair is 16.7 light years away from Sol. And what's really interesting about that is that Aquila City was founded in 2167. 167, the distance is 167. So that could be a coincidence, but that that's an awfully interesting one, considering uh, Aquila City seems very suspect to be in, in this Altair star system. Hmm. Every like when I read that, like how how you've typed it, I 
just think of Altair from Assassin's Creed. Yeah. Yeah, I figure there'd be a lot of Assassin's Creed fans listening too, and they'll they'll know that word as Altair. But my understanding is that the star is pronounced Altair. Yeah, it's it's I don't think it's how you spell Altair. It's just that's the first thing that pops into my mind. I think it's the same root word because Altair has an eagle with him, doesn't he? Yeah, the sign of the assassin is the eagle. Oh yeah, the eagle vision and all that. So yeah, there are all the systems we know about and then an interesting little speculative system to close it out. Um, because news has been so slow, we do have a, a kind of a news section, but we're doing it after the, the body of the show just because none of it's real urgent. But um, we do have one thing coming up really, really soon this week, uh, if you're listening to this shortly after it uploads. If you're listening to it a little later, then this might have already happened, then you'll know if we got Starfield. But Isra, there's an event coming up. What, what do we have to look forward to? Uh, the We've got the Tokyo Game Show, or TGS. Uh, if you don't remember last year, that's where Todd dropped the uh, ball about how much dialogue the Starfield has. And announced the full Japanese localization, I believe. Or he just, like, expanded on that it would have full Japanese um, translations. Well, uh, they translated the script, basically. And then they'll have Japanese actors reading it, I suppose. Yeah, I think so. I'm a little excited for TGS because, we, like you say, we do have that precedent of... Starfield having a presence there and it was pretty like big info when we got that dialogue line count just because it was such a big jump up from anything they'd done before uh, I remember that really kind of making an impact in the in the, the gaming scene so to speak so hopefully they can do that again I'm in that line because we know there's no voice protagonist um, does that include player dialogue do we know I don't think it does. That's the other thing. Fallout 4, they say, had 110,000 dialogue lines, but that was also because it had a voice protagonist and every protagonist line was spoken twice. I think if you take out the protagonist lines, Fallout 4 had less dialogue than Skyrim. Yeah, they... Because with no voice protagonist, they can have longer texts and you, obviously, you're going to know what you're going to say. Hopefully. I mean, with Fallout 4, the problem I had is I didn't know what I was going to say. There was just like the the friendly gesture, the no, sarcastic or question. And then I have to install a mod to know what my player's going to say. But sometimes that hasn't been very accurate to the actual line. So I, I'm hoping, you know, uh, we get to see what we're going to say. Like Skyrim and... I'm I'm hoping there's a lot more for the player to say than four options. Because they'll probably go back to the old method, like in Skyrim you scroll or you move your analog stick to choose an option. And, you know, those are fun because sometimes you like to read them out before you press it. It's like you're saying it. Yeah, that was a problem I had with Fallout 4, the, the synopses they gave you before you selected what you were saying sometimes weren't representative or it was easy to misinterpret them. And then, so you were thinking you were going to say something a certain way and then your character takes the tone com completely differently. 
So I'm hoping, like you say, Starfield kind of goes back to the Skyrim style of things. We didn't see the dialogue UI, and I really hope we do soon. Yeah, I I hope so too. Because the one thing I'm worried about with the Starfield dialogue is, I don't know if you noticed it or if I'm just seeing things, because I could just be seeing things. But the camera zooms in a little bit when you enter dialogue. Mm-hmm. That's giving me... I know they took a lot of inspiration from Oblivion, but that's the one thing about Oblivion that I found awkward, is the zooming in of the face, which might not be as bad, and hopefully there might be a toggle for that, but I know that can be Oblivion flashbacks. <laughs> I, I think the thing that made the zoom in Oblivion so awkward was because of how fast it was. Because Fallout 3 has the same thing, but it zooms in slower and I don't think quite as far. And it feels a lot more natural. So hopefully with Starfield they go more the Fallout 3 route. But I'm kind of happy that they're bringing that back. It's just like, it's classic Bethesda. It's, it's going to be awesome to play. Yeah, I think I know why they did it. Because in Skyrim, sometimes you can enter dialogue from like behind and there's no camera lock to the face. So they can be behind you, start a conversation, you have to awkwardly turn your camera very slowly. And also, in Fallout 3 and Oblivion, I don't think you could move the camera in dialogue, whereas in Skyrim you can. That's right. But you have to kind of, like, fight the dialogue box. <laughs> like, you have to move the camera, but it will move really slowly. Yeah, it always felt like my character had a neck injury when I was trying to turn my head <laughs> mid-conversation. Yeah. I just didn't want to go. Especially if they're behind you, you have to turn all the way around. <laughs> uh, but but anyway, I, I hope the zoom is optional because I, I know why they do it. It's like a face lock kind of thing. But I do hope there's some movement. You can move your head a little bit. Or at least look around when you're in dialogue and the, the zoom isn't forced. I mean, I wouldn't mind if the zoom was forced, but I think... For me to be immersed, I'd rather have no, no zoom. So it doesn't look like my player's in neck condition every time they want to talk to someone. And they just, <laughs> like, <laughs> shove their neck forward. I, I kind of want to, like, talk to people like that in, in real life every time I initiate a conversation. What, just... your neck just turns into a giraffe neck and you just, like, lean forward and you're right in their face. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it'll be a fun way to go about life. You're like inches away from kissing them. <laughs> uh, uh, anyway, where were we? Um, so, yeah, hopefully we, we see more about the dialogue at TGS, and Xbox will be at TGS. We don't really know in what capacity. They said they'll show updates on existing games. There was no word on upcoming games, and they've announced Starfield, so is that considered an existing games or... An existing game, or is does existing game mean released games? It's kind of ambiguous. Um, the Xbox TGS showcase, I don't know if they're calling it that, but it's basically what it is, will be September 15th at 9 a.m. UTC, which is UK time, 5 a.m. in the Eastern US, and 2 a.m. in the Western US. So us Americans got the short end of the stick for TGS, but we always do. That's okay. We're usually the beneficiaries of time zones. We'll take the hit this time. 
So yeah, if you have nothing going on on September 15th, just a short time from now, tune in. We might see Starfield. And then the one other pretty small piece of news was that um, former Bethesda artist Nate Perkypile, who's currently uh, working on his own indie game called The Axis Unseen, which looks really cool, and he shares a lot of updates on his Twitter about that game. Uh, it's going to be another open-world kind of monster hunting game. Looks awesome. But he was tweeting about his time at Bethesda and specifically what he worked on in Starfield. And he tweeted that he worked on Neon as well as, quote, many other cities slash locations. So we've had it in our heads that there are four cities in the game, four big ones. But I think what this tweet kind of confirms is that there's lots of smaller town settlements, outposts that we'll be able to find throughout the settled systems instead of just these four cities and and barren nothingness everywhere else. And just like that, I think we're ready for our closing segment of the show, the recommendations. Israel, do you got something for us? I do. My pick for this month is going to be The Elder Scrolls IV Oblivion, because we were just talking about the dialogue and how the zooming in reminded me of, reminded me of Oblivion's dialogue. And Starfield supposedly taken a lot from Oblivion. Um, like, concept-wise. Like, the, the things they were trying in Oblivion. Which was... Uh, I think it was new technology at the time. For, for, for Bethesda, it, I believe it was. I think. You can correct me if I'm wrong. No, I think you're exactly right. Yeah, before that was Morrowind, and I think that was handcrafted head to toe like they were trying yeah but you know it's yeah the NPCs look like plastic dolls <laughs> <laughs> there's like there's no wrinkles to the face they're just smooth and the wrinkles look like they're drawn on with marker pen uh, and like the elves heads are too thing like yeah yeah there's, there's a lot of problems with oblivion but it's still a classic and you might get a bit familiar with what Starfield will be trying um, so yeah I'm going to choose Oblivion and you can get it relatively cheap and if you're on Xbox you can play it on back compat on PC you're going to have troubles playing it so I recommend the back compat version um, and if you're on PlayStation, you'll have to play it on PlayStation 3, obviously. But, yeah, I recommend Oblivion. I was recently playing it on my Series X, and it runs beautifully. So if you've got a Series X, it's on Game Pass, so there's no reason not to try it. Yeah, at all at 60 frames. Yeah. It fills my heart with so much joy that the game from Bethesda's past that keeps coming up when we talk about Starfield is Oblivion. There's so many shades that we see of it, and you said it's a classic, and that's the, the perfect word for it. It's just a classic in so many ways. And I've talked to people who are Bethesda fans, are excited for Starfield, and I say, have you played Oblivion? And they go, no. And it's, if you can get over the aging graphics, it is such a good experience, the, the aging UI design too. I'm not a fan of the inventory. But um, just the quests, the world, the locations, it has so many things going for it. And in a lot of ways, it was ahead of its time. And I'm just so happy that kind of that 
the Oblivion era vibe is kind of back in Starfield to me. Yeah, that's like the one they went back to. Yeah. And you know, hopefully there's some Morrowind elements in there. Um, they're mm-hmm. definitely like, they're delving into procedural generation, which more more than they have because they used to always first had AI generate the world map. And then they, you know, fix corrections and place everything down themselves. Um, but like Daggerfall, every town, dungeon, or handcraft in the world was procedurally generated, I believe. Which, that was the last time they really, really went for it. That wasn't Todd Howard's directorial game. That was, that was before Todd Howard, like, kind of took over the franchise. And that was when Tess was kind of like, oh, generic fantasy, I want to say. Um, it's really Red Guard tomorrow, and when Todd took over that, the law started becoming current Tess law and more unique in many ways. The, I mean, the thing with like Oblivion in particular is... Todd and the team are watching Lord of the Rings, which is the Tolkien kind of fantasy. So they uh, kind of backpedaled on parts, and Oblivion was inspired by that trilogy, and that's why Cyrodiil looks how it does. Because they were all watching Lord of the Rings, because that came out; those films were coming out during the development. They really liked that, so. Oblivion's a bit more, I want to say, generic fantasy, which clashes with the the new, like the more newer lore with Red Guard and Morrowind, and uh, that's when they changed Cyrodiil, but that was a design choice. Um, from the jungle to the uh, like forest and open greenlands, I mean you can kind of see the. I don't, I don't, I, I find the word generic too strong, but it was pretty generic, like the world, you know, like some of the creatures, enemies, not to say they didn't exist before, but it kind of felt like very traditional fantasy with Elder Scrolls stuff. I get what you mean. Yeah. You had the knights in shining armor and the, the towering fancy looking buildings that made of marble looking stuff. But I thought it was a retcon, but I thought it made sense in the context of this is the Empire's heart. It's the home of the Empire. I thought it made sense for there to be that that kind of more generic. I agree that it's too strong, but it does kind of fit more generic fantasy setting as opposed to Morrowind that's kind of out on the outer reaches of Tamriel, looser governance that had the stranger in a strange land feel. After Oblivion, they have gone back to the more Elder Scrolls stuff. But it was just like for that, it's like an anomaly. Where they kind of like, it's definitely, like, Oblivion's definitely to us. It's just, you know, it just kind of stands out like a sort of film. And I'm mostly talking about, like, the NPCs. Because they look like Play-Doh or plastic dolls. But... New, new technology, they were, you know, trying new things. 
and some of it didn't quite work out, like the dialogue persuasion wheel, which I never understood. Um, so I'm glad they've taken the concept of it and reworked that. But yeah, definitely, we've talked a lot about Oblivion now, so yeah. The, the closing thought I will add on, on Oblivion is that I think it was a really smart move of Bethesda to do the higher fantasy stuff in hindsight because after Morrowind test series, the test series was kind of known among like gamers. I think after Oblivion, it exploded into the mainstream and a lot more people knew about it. And then that exploded even more with Skyrim. But in order to get the series off the ground and into the mainstream spotlight, the switch of Oblivion's theming and of Cyrodiil's environment was really, really smart. Oh, yeah, yeah. It, it, it was always going to be a smash hit because Oblivion was supposed to be an Xbox 360 launch title. But it got delayed because I don't know if it was crunch or they just didn't have enough time. But it got delayed until the spring. And then it was a PC and Xbox 360 exclusive until it came to PS3. And uh, that PS3 release is not one of Bethesda's brightest days, but that's okay. It, it was their first... I don't even think they... I don't know if, if this is true. I, I don't think they ported it themselves. It, oh, it, and it was Skyrim that was also very broken on the PS3. Yeah, they... I heard they had to cut some stuff because of the PS3. Hold on, my clothes are falling behind me. Um, I, don't, I don't know if that's true, that the PS3 was causing problems that they had to cut content, or if that was just the consoles in general. Because the, the main problem with the Xbox 360, which Skyrim and Oblivion both launched on, not so much the PS3, but that's harder because of the CPU. Um, but with the 360, you had 512 megabytes of RAM. And if you know about, like, today, 512 megabytes is not a lot. Most games today take four at minimum. Usually. It depends on your settings, but that is an incredibly small amount of RAM. And, and granted, on the 360, you could distribute that RAM however you wanted between GPU and CPU. But the how they got Oblivion and Skyrim looking how they do on the 360 is just amazing to me. Yeah, it is an achievement. And it's always been a little tumultuous between Bethesda and PlayStation going back to Morrowind when it was an Xbox exclusive. So this buyout, I don't want to say it seemed inevitable, but it kind of seemed like the natural direction for Bethesda to go because they were not going to go under the Sony umbrella after, I mean, I'm sure they had a, a cordial relationship, but um, it always seemed like kind of a disaster between, between Bethesda and Sony. So now their games won't be over there. So, that's the way it is. Yeah. I think even Oblivion on PlayStation 3, it didn't have every single piece of DFC content. It it had the two expansions released when it launched. 
think it launched with them. Because that was 2007 by that point. Um, but they didn't get all the, like, the horse armor. The the stuff, the memes content stuff. Uh, they didn't get, like, the wizard's tower, the spell terms. I don't believe they got any of that. But considering the PS3, it kind of made sense. And also, if Professor didn't port it, there might have been problems with porting the rest of it. I don't know. Unless there was a deal with Microsoft that those particular DLCs could only be on, like, Windows platforms. I, I don't I don't know the actual reasons for that. Um, yeah, I... And, and also, uh, Bethesda used to have a ton of exclusivity deals with Bethesda anyway. So, yeah, I, I, yeah, I definitely agree. They, it made sense they went with Microsoft in the end. Yeah. Probably best for, for all parties involved. Yeah. Um, alrighty. Great pick, Oblivion. Uh, my recommendation for this month is going to be another remastered game from the 90s. Last month I did Outcast Second Contact, which was sci-fi. This month it's not sci-fi, but it's still... A cult classic called Grim Fandango. Hopefully, you've heard of it. If you haven't, uh, it came out in the mid to late 90s. And you play as basically a dead guy who's trying to sell travel packages to other dead people so that he can leave the land of the dead. And um, it has some of the best writing you'll ever have, you'll ever experience in a video game. A little short, but there are some tough puzzles to it. And uh, great soundtrack really really well written dialogue um it's just a really cool little game that you can sink some time into so grim fandango good pick thanks so great this has been the 14th episode of the lorefield podcast uh we recorded this over several days so thank you israel for all the the time you took out of doing it I magically got over my cold in the middle of the episode because of that. So uh, feeling much better than I did a couple hours ago. But uh, you can find us on several different places. On YouTube, that's where the podcast is best listened to for the visual aids. And we plan to expand the lore content and video content on YouTube uh, as the game releases. We should be doing some pretty cool stuff there. On Twitter, um, when we've got some time, we'll occasionally do threads on on lore and we share some cool stuff over there that's at lorefieldnet on twitter and then the subreddit where it all started is uh kind of a forum where where you can go and if you have theories or or things you pointed out and want to share go on the subreddit r slash lorefield and uh, we have about a thousand people give or take over there and uh it's been a little quiet over there so we'd love for some people to come over and just share what you found with uh, with Starfield. There's so much to, so much more to find, I'm sure. So, um, yeah, join us over there, and I'm sure we can have some some fun conversations. It's the main law subreddit, so we kind of like leave it as that. But obviously, there will be connections because we use the same name. We we promote it either way, um, but that's kind of its own thing. Um, think of it like we shared the same name but we also both run it and over time there'll be more hopefully there'll be more people 
joining us mods and like uh, we'll have obviously we'll have reddit mods um, and if they want to mod the podcast stuff as well like uh, if we do it live or you know like uh, become a moderator to filter comments then uh, that can be up to them or we can just have people that want to mod on reddit and people that want to mod the podcast and youtube stuff so that's for the future but i i don't know if what i explained made sense i think it did yeah it's, it's just we don't want uh we don't want the main loss of reddit to feel like an advertisement just for the podcast yeah, we, very well said. We want it. We do want it to be just the main loss of and down the road, um, we we may make a podcast for it, and we pin that every month or every few months. Obviously, loss of Brita, law theories. You want to like discuss like the ethics of a. I don't know. You know, you know, you want to discuss the ethics of the United Colonies, like. Uh, politics but something something like that when the game's out st stuff like that um it's it is different for a lost subreddit to have like a podcast going on and then well like a podcast connection kind of thing in like the sidebar and then you've got like oh they do youtube law content using that same name but generally uh, it's they're separate things um but it's just the same people involved in them. The name Lawfield is just very iconic to me. And this podcast and the YouTube content, it's all going to be for fun and like sharing the law knowledge. And yeah. It is your, which, yeah, it's not your traditional law subreddit with like, you know, it's not fully separate, but we, we, we are trying to keep it its own thing. So it can stay the law subreddit without it being too complicated. Or there's too much podcast talk and not enough law talk. And then people don't see it as a law subreddit and more of a podcast or law, YouTube law content discussions. Yeah, for a while there we were posting every podcast to the subreddit. And I think that in hindsight, I don't think that was a great idea. So we'll we'll stop doing that. Yeah, we, we we don't want to give the wrong impression, mm -hmm. obviously, but we're learning as we go. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, if you're at this point and you're listening, just, you know, um, we started on Reddit, but then, obviously, I've explained this, how Lawfield came together, and then we decided to do, like, podcast stuff, and this was all for fun. But at the time, I I did want to keep it separate, just to kind of leave the loss a bit alone. But it kind of like, um, it became a series of events, and we did the occasional promotion, but uh, we never made it clear. I well, I don't think we ever made it clear that the loss of it was more separate. And I think we yeah. should, we definitely should have done that from the beginning. Yeah. Um, th this is not like something's gone wrong and we're apologizing. We're just trying to explain. No, uh, yeah, this was completely self-directed. Uh, yeah, we just 
want to do it now just so people are aware because we're, we're getting very close to Starfield and obviously we want to make sure that it's not confusing we're just trying to make the distinction clear yeah so thank you for listening to our little spring cleaning there fall cleaning I guess but uh, this is the 14th episode of the Lorefield Podcast. We'll be back next time, hopefully, with some news from Tokyo Game Show. But uh, you can find us in all the aforementioned places. And uh, I'm Mitch, along with Ezra. We'll see you next time. Bye, all.